You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, so today we are back into the set of sermons on the family that we started last week, and we are going to be talking about marriage again. And, uh, and we're going to take it kind of step two and talk about another nuance of, of marriage. And so when you're thinking of the passage that you just heard, it is gold for marriage. It is like one of those very rich places that tells us so much about marriage and how God sees it, what it's for, all of those sorts of things. Now, this morning, I cannot tackle the whole passage, but I want to draw your attention to two things we learn about marriage in this passage. Two things that we see in this passage about marriage. And the first one is going to be more uh, review in nature. It's going to take us back into last week. One of the first things that we see about this passage, and in particular about what it's saying about marriage, is that marriage is a metaphor. This is what marriage is. It's a picture of something beyond itself. Marriage uh, functions like a signpost, allowing us to see the sign, but not like obsess about the sign, but to see what the sign's actually pointing to. Marriage functions like that in our life. And last week we, we said this as clearly as we could, that marriage, our earthly marriages are metaphors of God's covenant love to the church. This is what marriage is. This is what marriage is for. This is the signpost of marriage. It is, it is an earthly metaphor. Your, your, your marriage now, like these horizontal marriages that we're in, they're, they're metaphors that point us beyond themselves to the eternal love of God for his bride, the church. This is what marriage is and what marriage is doing. And you see this at the end of the passage. Look at Ephesians 5, verses 31 through 32. Paul says it like this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis 2.24, the definition of marriage in the Bible. Then he gives us this added insight in verse 32. This mystery that we're talking about marriage, it's profound. And I'm saying that it refers or it pictures Christ and the church. Earthly marriages exist to paint a living, breathing picture to the world of God's covenant love for his people. Uh, Jonathan Edwards was an old Puritan pastor of a few generations or a few centuries ago. He used to say it this way, paraphrased. He said, marriage is the shadow. It's just the shadow. It's not the substance. It's just the shadow. God's love is the substance. Marriage is the ray of light. God's love, though, is the sun. Marriage is the stream. God's love is the fountain. Marriage is the drop, but God's love is the ocean. This is what earthly marriages are meant to do. They're the drop that's meant to lead us to see the ocean of God's love for us. Every time you see a man and woman fall in love, every time you see a man get giddy over a gal and vice versa, every time you see them get to the point of making that mega commitment that we call marriage, then throw, when they throw themselves into that sort of commitment, that is a reenactment of the biblical love story. This is what it's doing. This is what it's showing. I mean, think about the reason that those impulses exist in the human heart is because God put them there. And God put them there so that we could see a living, breathing picture of his covenant love for us. This is what marriage is and what it's for. Now, this passage also shows us, though, that that, that covenant sort of picture of, of marriage that marriage showing us what God is, it's not meant to just stay theoretical up there. It's actually pressed down, that metaphor of marriage is actually pressed down all the way into the roles in marriage of how men and women relate to one another. And you see this in verses 22 through 25. Let me read this for you and pay attention to all the connecting sort of words. 
all the comparison sort of words that you see in this passage. In verse 22, we see this, wives, submit to your own husbands, and then listen to the comparison word, as to the Lord. So there's something about the Lord that's, that's, inter, that's you know, interplayed in that moment. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. There's your comparison. His body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, here's another comparison phrase. So also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. How? Here's the comparison. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. All those comparison words are showing us that marriage is not meant to theoretically kind of show Christ's covenant love to his people. But that metaphor is to be pressed all the way down into how a husband and wife would relate to one another within their marriage. And if you want to summarize it, maybe you could say it this way. As heads, husbands have the unique privilege of showing off the gracious love of Jesus for his bride, the church. Husbands, you've got a unique privilege ability and privilege by God to do that. And as helpers, wives have the unique privilege of showing off the church's joyful response to the love and authority of Jesus by the way that she interacts with and, and relates to her husband. Do you see the picture there? It's pressed all the way down. This picture of, of, you know, Christ's love for the church is pressed all the way down into how the husband and wife relate to one another, how they interact with one another in their marriage. So maybe we could say it this way. Both head and helper, husband and wife, are equal in value and worth and dignity before God. But both husband and wife, head and helper, have distinct God-given roles in their marriage. And listen, that, that's really similar to actually God himself. It's reflecting something about the triune God. God is one God, right? Three distinct persons, each person fully God. But each of those persons have a way of relating to one another. That's not demeaning. It's not stripping any person of the, the triune God of their dignity. When the, when the son submits himself to the father, it's not saying something about the value of the son. They're all fully God, but there is a way of interacting and relating. The spirit then, then submits himself to both the father and the son. In some ways, marriage is showing us something about that triune God. So maybe we could say it this way, just to summarize what we're seeing here in verses 22 through 25. These distinct roles, head for the husband, helper for the wife, these distinct roles are gifts from our good father. One to his sons, one to his daughters, so that we would each have unique ways of showing and reflecting God's covenant love to his church. But they're both great gifts. Gifts. They're scorned gifts in our culture, but they're great God-given gifts, giving each one of us in the room, each gender in the room, specific ways to mirror and reflect the good heart of God. Now, next week, we are going to talk a lot about ladies and their particular role. This week, we're gonna talk a little bit about men. In the future, we're gonna talk a lot about singles. So we're kind of spreading it around, but this week we're gonna talk about men and marriage. And this really leads to the second thing I want you to see in this passage. So the first thing is marriage is a metaphor. The second thing, we just wanna say it really clearly and say it like this. This passage is showing us, it's giving us this insight that men are to be Jesus portraying heads in their house. Men are to be Jesus portraying heads. You see it in verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, when you read, if you're a man in the room and you read verse 23, that verse should sober you. 
it should like shake you into reality. The fact that God would call a lady to entrust herself to your loving leadership. The fact that God now holds you responsible for this woman and any children that you, you know, would come out of that relationship. That should be a sobering thing to consider. Now, when you look at verse 23, I think it's important to see that verse 23 isn't commanding us to do something. It is just showing us the truth about what a man in a, in a marriage is. Uh, that, that verse is in the indicative mood. Okay, that, that idea of us being the head, the husband's the head of the wife, it's in the indicative mood. The indicative is a way of stating a fact. It's like saying it's raining outside. It's just a statement of fact. It's not telling you to do something, it's saying what, what is. And in the same way in this passage, Paul is saying this is what you are. By nature, if a man marries a woman, by nature that man has become a head. This is how God sees it. This, this is the role that God has divinely given them to step into. So the, the question is not, you know, are you ahead? That's not what this question is asking if you're a married man. It, really the question of this passage is, are you functioning like a godly head, like a Jesus portraying head? What kind of head are you is the question of the passage. Now that just leads us to ask the question, what is headship in the Bible? Like what is that? Let me just give you a working definition to kind of get us all kind of moving in the same direction here. Here is a way to think about what headship is. Headship, or that, you know, Definition-wise, a working definition, it's the husband's divine calling to take primary responsibility to love his Christ or love his wife as Christ loves his church. That's headship. It's the husband's divine calling to take primary responsibility to love his wife as Christ loves his church. Let me just break that into some parts. It's a divine calling. Now, here's what that means. It means the headship helper dance, okay, marriage. It's the, the man embracing his role, the, the wife embracing her role. This, this headship helper dance in marriage is not a, it did not come about because of some like human invention. It's not Paul looking around and thinking, you know what, I've got a great idea. How about we try it this way? That is not what's happening in Ephesians 5. It's not a human invention. This headship helper dance is rooted all the way into creation. It's God's invention. We know that Paul is thinking about all the way back into Genesis 1, 2, and 3 because he quotes Genesis 2 in this passage. We know that he has in view, this is what I learned in Genesis 1 and 2, and now I'm applying it. I'm bringing it to life for the church here in Ephesus. He is taking what he saw there and he is contextualizing it here in Ephesus. This is what he's doing here. He's thinking about Genesis 2. Do you remember Genesis 2? We talked about it last week. Uh, God creates Adam first and he sees that there is something not good. He, ha he doesn't have a suitable helper. So God then creates a helper that is suitable for Adam. And Paul is picking up on that headship helper dance and he's explaining it here. But the point is, is that it's not, create, it's not rooted in culture. It's rooted all the way back in creation. These things are God's ideas. They're great and glorious things because they're God's things. So it's a divine calling. Secondly, it's a divine calling to take primary responsibility. This is what headship is. It's a willingness to take primary responsibility. Headship is not a right to rule, but a sobering responsibility to bear. If you're a single man in the room, I want you to listen to me on this. If you are not willing to bear the responsibility of other people, 
you should not get married. You shouldn't do it. You shouldn't do it until you're ready to take responsibility for those around you. This is what headship is. It means that you take responsibility and hear it like this, for everything in your home, everything. This is what being a head is. This is what headship in the Bible is. You're taking responsibility for your finances, for, the, for, for your kids and your wife's growth in the gospel, for discipline in the home, for parenting in the home, for protection in the home, for provision in the home, for everything in the home. You're taking responsibility for those things. Now, let me clarify that it doesn't mean that a husband has to do every single thing in a home, but it does mean that a husband is responsible for what happens in the home. Now, if you wanna see just like a, a good illustration of how this plays out in the Bible, think back to Genesis chapter three. Do you remember what happens there? Uh, the serpent comes and deceives Eve and she uh, takes the forbidden fruit and, and eats the forbidden fruit. And it's not as if, you know, Adam is just kind of, you know, nowhere to be found. Genesis th uh, chapter three, verse six says it like this. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. He, he is in the shadows, passively watching his wife sin. It's like the opposite of what biblical headship should be. He's in the shadows watching his wife sin and then joins in on that rebellion against God. Now, do you remember what happens when God comes and confronts Adam and Eve? God comes to the garden and, uh, and remember, Eve is who initially took the fruit and, and ate it, then gave it to Adam. But do you remember how, how God interacts with them? In verse nine of Genesis three, it says that the Lord God called to the man and said, Adam, where are you? Now just picture Adam saying, but it was my wife's fault. And God is saying, no, Adam, where are you? Now, this is showing us something about the primary responsibility borne by every husband. When God comes knocking on the door of your house to check in on your house, the first question asked is always going to be to the man. Just like it was for Adam, God is gonna knock on your door and he's gonna ask for the head of the house because the head of the house is bearing the primary responsibility for that home. Now, a word to the wives. The word primary responsibility is important. The husband is primarily responsible, but not solely responsible. Eve didn't get the first question from God, but she did get questions from God. You just keep reading in Genesis 3, and she gets her dialogue with the Lord, right? So, so Adam's passive sort of working in his headship did not excuse Eve's poor choices. So why do you need to hear that? Regardless of where your husband is, there is still a mandate on you from the Lord to walk in holiness and obedience before the Lord. So what is headship? It's this divine calling to take primary responsibility. And then here's the third part of that definition, to love his wife as Jesus loves his church. Now that part of the definition is so important because it keeps us out of the, the ditches that people have fallen into historically with headship. And here are the two primary ditches. And by the way, Genesis chapter three, verse 16 predicts these ditches. It's, it's predicting that man and woman are gonna have a lot of difficulty as they're trying to figure out what does it mean to relate to God in the dance of headship and helper, right? And here are the two ditches that I think men fall into. One ditch is to think headship equals dominance. That in some ways, headship equals the ability to be a dictator. That is not what headship means. That is a distortion, a sinful distortion of headship. It is a sinful thing when a husband creates a stifling, oppressive environment in the home. It is antithetical to what biblical headship is. 
It's suffocating to a wife. That is not biblical headship. The other ditch that many men fall into is indifference. So one is dominance and the other is indifference. These men are typically not jerks like the dominant sort of a guy, but they're typically really nice people. They've just taken this beautiful gift that God has given them and they're neglecting it. They're neglecting the beauty of marriage, the beauty of their spouse. They're just just failing to see that God has put them there and entrusted that marriage to them, that spouse to them, so that they could help that spouse become everything that she was designed by God to be. And listen, churches are full of this guy, just indifferent to the beautiful gift that God's given them. But contrary to both dominance and indifference is biblical headship. And we're seeing here in Ephesians 5 what headship looks like. It looks like a husband's divine calling to take primary responsibility to love his wife like Jesus loves his wife. That's verse 25 in Ephesians 4. That that is biblical headship. It's laying down our life just like Jesus. It's stepping into the the shoes that Jesus has left for us so that we can step into those shoes and be Jesus portraying figures in our marriages, in our homes, so that we can tell the world this is what Jesus is like. This is his good, gentle love as it is, you know, as it infuses into a household. And that idea of loving like Christ loved the church is really the theme of what biblical headship is. You see that word love appears six times in this passage. It is giving the texture, it's giving the weight, it's giving the substance as to how biblical headship plays itself out relationally with other people. So that leads us to a place of having to figure out what does it look like for Jesus to love his bride? Like if that's the model for us, if that's the model and motivator for a husband to love his wife, how has Jesus loved his wife? What does that look like? How does Jesus go about doing that? How has Jesus loved his church? Now, we could spend multiple sermons on that. I just want to spend a few minutes with you this morning teasing out four ways that Jesus loves his bride. Four ways that Jesus loves his church to give every man in the room some bearings and kind of some handlebars on what it would mean to love your wife like that. What it would mean to be a Jesus portraying head in your home. So how does Jesus love his church? Here's one way he loves his church. Jesus initiates. He initiates. Have you ever, if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, if God has rescued and redeemed you, have you ever just asked yourself the question, why is it that you're a follower of Jesus? Like, why is that? Now, there's a lot of things that we could say. Many of those would be on the surface. Like we could say, because at one point I chose to follow Jesus because my parents cultivated that in me. I mean, we could say a lot of, at some point somebody shared, I mean, we could say a lot of things that are up here on the surface. But when you get down below all of those surface things and you get down into the bedrock reality of why it is that you're a Christian, if you are, I'm a Christian, why is that? The biggest thing we could say, the most ultimate thing that we could say is, It's because God set his initiating affection on us. That's why we're a Christian. And you see that all the way back in Ephesians chapter one, in verses three and four. It says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, like while we were stuck in our sin, still in our rebellion, God the Father sent his son to initiate with us, to pursue us, to cross enemy lines. And we're thinking all the while that the groom that's coming to rescue us is our enemy. So we're trying to kill him, right? But Jesus, he pushes through all of those barriers. He melts all of our resistance. He takes care of all of the walls between us and him. And he wins our heart over and proposes to us and marries us. That is the initiating love of God that is the reason 
that you're a Christian if you are, if you've made that definitive step toward him. Uh, 1 John 4.19 says it this way, we love. And then it kind of poses, why, why do we love? We, we love why? Because he first loved us because of that initiating and pursuing love of God. So in the same way, just like Jesus initiates, this is what godly headship looks like in the home. Jesus initiates, so we as husbands initiate. We, we pursue, we, we go first. Headship means that we take the primary responsibility to initiate. When there is coldness in a marriage, when there is distance in a marriage, when there is a problem between the husband and wife, when there's tension between the husband and the wife, when you feel stuck in your, in your marriage, Headship means that the husband has the primary responsibility to go first, to move toward those moments, to initiate in those moments. It means that, that you as a husband initiate movement toward everything that God would want for your home and away from everything that God would not want for your home. This is what godly headship looks like in action. Um, one time I heard one of my favorite pastors, he was on a panel and he was asked a question about headship. He was asked, what does headship look like in the home? And I love the way he answered that. He said it like this. He said, it looks like this. It's saying, let's. And it's saying that a lot. It's saying, let us pray together. Let us read the Bible together. Let us do family devotions together. Let us give generously together. Let us serve together. Let us, let us go to church together. Let's date one another. Let's share Jesus with, you know, with one another and with other people. Let's cultivate our friendship in our marriage. Let's play together. Let's laugh together. It's taking the initiative by saying, let's do all those things. This is what godly headship looks like. It's taking that sort of initiative in the home. Uh, maybe you could think of it this way. Uh, godly headship or this, this willingness to initiate means that a husband is consistently breaking the death spiral of selfishness that so many marriages get into. Here's the death spiral of selfishness. The, the wife doesn't do something that the husband wants. And then in response to that, the husband's like, well, I'm not gonna do something she wants. And then the wife says back, well, I'm not gonna do something else that he wants. And then the husband says back, I'm not gonna do something else that he wants. And you've got this deadly spiral that starts and the marriage gets sucked into the toilet bowl of just misery and death down there, right? And one of the ways that every husband should think about their role in a marriage is that they would take the initiative to break that cycle. That even when they don't feel loved, they initiate. Even when they feel hurt, they initiate, they move toward. This is what godly headship looks like in the home. So husbands, think about your marriage for a moment. Is there any distance there? Any unaddressed issues? Any coldness in your marriage? Any hurt that has gone untalked about, but just everybody's just trying to bury it and just kind of move on? Any hurt in your marriage that needs to be dealt with? Any places where you just kind of feel stuck right now? Any places where you need to pursue wise counsel to help you get unstuck? Now hear me, what you do in that moment matters. You're gonna be telling the truth about Jesus or telling a lie about Jesus. And telling the truth about Jesus means you move into every one of those moments. You initiate. Now I just can anticipate the objection that some husbands might have and the objection would go something like this. But you don't know my wife. <laughs> you don't know who I'm married to. And that's true. I don't know who your wife is and I don't know who you're married to. 
But I do know this, your initiation is not dependent upon your wife. Just like Jesus' initiation wasn't dependent upon you. He, he initiated despite you, right? He initiated to, to you in spite of your rebellion against him, in spite of you wanting to kill him, in spite of you not liking him, in spite of you stiff. He initiates to you in all of those moments. This is what I love about Jesus. He's not demanding one thing from us that he has not already done for us. And when we start to see and, and experience that initiating love that he has given to us in spite of us, it then unlocks the capacity in us to love other people in spite of them, regardless of how lovely or unlovely they are, in spite of how perfect or imperfect they are. It allows us to move toward them with an initiating sort of love. This is what headship looks like. It looks like initiating like our big brother Jesus did. Here's the second thing we learn about headship. Look in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus gave himself. I mean, think about it. God the Father sends his beloved son. There's no more precious gift God the Father could give. God the Son wraps on human flesh. He pursues us. He's initiating with us. And he was willing to give his very life so that you then, rebels against him, so that you then, me, we could have life. That, that is what Jesus has done. He's given his very life so that you and I could have life. And in the same way, that is our model of headship. Husbands, just like the big brother Jesus, they give their lives away. Husbands, just like Jesus did. Jesus gave himself so we give ourselves. Headship is not dictatorship. That is not, that is a sinful distortion of headship. Headship is an invitation, a divine invitation from God to die a million deaths to yourself so that others can live. That's headship. God, I will die for the sake of these people so they can live. That, that is what headship looks like in action. And isn't that the gospel? I mean, isn't this what the gospel leads to and is and leads us to? I mean, this is kind of how Jesus refers to like life with him. When he's talking in John chapter 12, verse 24, he says it this way. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, that grain of seed, that grain of wheat, if it dies there in the earth, it bears much fruit. That is what Jesus's life was. A grain of wheat that fell into the soil died to give you life. And this is the divine calling on every husband. God is looking at you and you're the seed if you're a husband. God has called you to plant that seed into your family and there allow, allow that, that, that seed of you in, planted in your family to allow that seed to die there so that it could then give life to everyone else in your home. That's a divine, that's the divine calling of every husband a willingness to step into your family like that. Maybe you can think of headship like this. Headship is turning away from that posture of the fallen man. And here's the posture of the fallen man. Give me, everyone around me, give me so that I can live. That's the posture of the fallen man. Headship is the willingness to, to forego that, to turn away from the posture of the fallen man and toward the posture of the new man, the, the Jesus created man. 
And this new posture goes like this. It's no longer give me so that I can live. It's let me give my life away so that other people can live. That is what headship looks like. You're looking around at your family and saying, I will die for these people so that they can live. I'll die for my wife so that she can flourish and be everything that God would have her be. That is headship. I'll die so that they can be everything physically, everything spiritually, everything emotionally that God has designed them to be. I'll give my life away. I'll die so that they can become that. Now to single ladies in the room, I wanna plead with you for a moment here. Do not settle for any man who is not willing to do that, who is not willing to turn from the old fallen posture, give me so that I can live, and to the new posture, the new, the new posture that Jesus creates, let me give you so that you can live. Don't, don't settle for any man who is not willing to go there and to be that. To, to married men, or let me talk to single men for just a moment. You know, here's the great thing about where you are if you're a single man. You can prep yourself. You can prep yourself for marriage right now. And here's the way you do that. By growing in godliness, by growing in the willingness to look around you at people and say to them, I'll die so that you can live. I'll do that. It's how you grow into a future husband that's gonna be a godly, Jesus-portraying head in your home. Now, to married men in the room, I'm gonna plead with me that you'll hear what I'm about to say. When we fail to do this, and listen, man, I'm right there. I've failed in so many ways in my marriage. When I'm saying all the things I'm saying today, it is not as a tour guide that's kind of been there and done that and perfected. It is a, it's a fellow traveler walking along this painful road with you. But I want you to hear me, every married man in the room. When you are unwilling to die to yourself and to get over yourself in your home, when you are absorbed with yourself, you reduce yourself down into another kid in your home. And having another boy in the home is, it's an incredibly difficult burden for any wife to carry. And I'm just begging you, don't make your wife carry that. Don't make her carry that. I mean, step into these shoes that Jesus has left for you. Step into these shoes and learn what it means to die to yourself. And then you get the ability to carry those loads for your wife. Man, step into those shoes. One of the problems when it comes to this area that I think a lot of men have is that we see our life, and in particular our marriages, wrongly. Let me, let me kind of describe the wrong picture that I think a lot of men have. Too many men see marriage as their side job. So they have a job. And the job out there that they're doing, making money, doing whatever they're doing, that's the main job. So that job out there is the main thing. Then when they get home, they go to the second job that's kind of the, the unimportant leftover side job in their life. That is so not the way the Bible talks about your marriage. It's, it flips that whole script on its head. Your side job is that one you're going to go and like wake up tomorrow and go do Monday morning. That's your side job. When you get home tomorrow... That, that next job that you have, that, that other job that you have, that's the big job. That's the job that is the most important job in your life. This is how the Lord would want you to see your life. The main job is what happens in the context of your family, your wife, your kids. Your second job, less important job, is that one that you're doing out there somewhere. One of my friends, he, uh, he's a pastor, and he uses this phrase to, this, to kind of encourage the men in his church toward that. He just encourages his men, be men of the second shift. Be men of the second shift. Like you do your first shift in the morning, 
and kind of through the day, and you do that, then you come home, and it's second shift time. And the second shift is where it's really at. So be men of the second shift, but be men who embrace that shift and make it everything God would want it to be for your family. Um, I was listening to one of my friends talk about some of their like uh, defining moments about their childhood. And it was so interesting for me to listen to him describe the number one sort of defining moment for him. And that, that defining moment was what happened every day when his dad came to the door at night. And he just described it like this. Later, his dad told him that before I walked to the door every night, I would just beg God, God, would you give me everything I need right now? I'm tired, I'm emotionally drained, but it's second shift time. The most important job is in front of me. So when I walk through that door, God, would you give me everything I need to be a life-giving presence in this house? And, uh, and here was the defining thing. When, when my friend thinks about his childhood, here's what he thinks. Every day when my dad came to the door, he was a life-giving presence. Here's what I saw. He would come to the door and the first thing he would do is find my mom. He would go to his wife and he would kiss his wife. And he said it was a serious Christian kiss. I mean, he, he was, it was serious business over there. He would do that and then he would look at his wife and he would try to define, are there any burdens that you are carrying? And how can I lift those burdens from your soul right now? And then he would turn toward his kids and he would look at them and he's paying attention to them. And he's asking the question, what do they need? And he would so often get down on the floor and wrestle with my friend. I mean, this is like one of those defining things that my friend thinks is every time when he came through the door, this is what was happening. He wasn't looking at his wife or his kids to kind of prop him up emotionally. He was coming through the door ready to give life to everyone in his home. Give his life away to everyone in that home so that they could flourish and become all that God would have them be. And I just remember listening to him just thinking, oh God, would you help me be that? God, would you help me? So often I come home and the only thing I want to do is check out God. Don't let me do it. God, help me stay engaged. Help me walk in and lift the burden of my wife. Help me pay attention to my kids. Give life to my kids. Give life to my home. God, help me be that. And gosh, I'm just praying by God's grace, he would make every married man in the room that. Every man in the room that. A life-giving presence, giving your life away everywhere you go. This is what godly headship looks like. It takes initiative. It gives, it, it's, it gives its life away. Here's the third thing that we see. How does Jesus love us? Jesus loves us by making us beautiful. Look at verses 26 and 27. Here's what the love of Jesus does for us. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. This is what Jesus is doing. He is making a church full of splendor and glory without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. If you are a Christian, and if you're not, man, I pray that you would today, that you would receive God's love for you and you become one. Because for every Christian in the room, for every son and daughter of God's in the room, Christ didn't just marry you. He didn't just bring you into his family and rescue and redeem you. He is also 100% committed to making something beautiful of you. This is what God is doing. He, he's not just out to redeem and rescue you. He's out to make you into a beautiful bride full of splendor and glory without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. How does God do that? He does that by his initiating, pursuing love of us. It's his initiating love that finds us when we're very unlovely 
and makes us into a bride full of splendor and loveliness. That's what God's up to in our life. That is what Jesus is doing in our life. And in the same way, a godly head embraces that role. Jesus makes us beautiful. And as a husband, we are commissioned by God to make our wives and our family beautiful. Um, Dave Hansen's one of our elders. And I've heard him give this illustration a million times when he's talking to people about marriage. He says, man, here's what you are as a husband. You are a big oak tree planted right in the middle of your family. And as that oak tree, you are meant to provide shade for your family, emotional shade, physical shade and protection, spiritual shade and protection and provision so that everyone in your house can grow up into everything that God would have them be. That's what your calling is as a husband to make your family beautiful. Men, maybe you could think about your role this way. Your marital mission is to make it as easy as possible for your spouse to love, look like, and live for Jesus. If you're married in the room, just hear this. God has not called me to be the primary pastor for your wife. He's dang sure hadn't called Beth Moore to be the primary pastor of your wife. He has called you to do that. He has gifted you with that the privilege of pastoring and shepherding and making your family beautiful. He's given you that role and responsibility. Um, One time I heard a guy stand up in front of a bunch of church planters and pastors and he looked at that group of people and he said, you know what I think? He said, I think that there are a lot of women in this room. So it was church planters, pastors, and their wives. He said, I think there's a lot of women in this room who are spiritual widows pastor husband, church planter husband. You may be in your house physically, but you are totally absent spiritually and emotionally in your home. You're totally absent from the grind of figuring out what does it look like to provide that sort of canopy in your home where everybody can grow up under that to to be everything that God would have them be. You're absent when it comes to that. Husbands in the room, are you there? Like, I'm not just talking like you kind of work and you come home and you're like physically in your home. Are you there? Like, do you know where your wife's struggling right now? Do you know what she is praying for right now? Do you know what she is begging God to change in you right now? Do you know where her unique struggles and pitfalls and difficulties are right now? See, this is what it means to be a godly head. It's providing an environment where your your wife is cared for and shepherded and pastored so that she can become everything that God would have her be. Men in the room, the level of love for God in your home will not rise past you. It's gonna reflect you when it's all said and done. That doesn't mean you have to know the most about Jesus in your home, but it does mean that you need to have a deep, rich longing for Jesus and more of him. And what a blessing that is for everyone else in the home when a husband is operating like that. Fourthly, and we'll finish here, Jesus delights in us. Isn't that a beautiful thing about the gospel? Jesus delights in us. Look at verses 28, 29, and 30. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh. But here's what a good husband and and Jesus does for us. But nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his own body. This is what Jesus does for us. He pursues us. He he nourishes us. He cherishes us. He delights in us. And this is what every godly husband does. He delights in his wife. 
He delights in his wife. That, that, those words nourish and cherish, I love those words because they give context to what it means to love your wife. Really to love anyone. They give context to it. To nourish means to develop or to grow. I love what one guy said about that. He said marriage, to, now hear this. Men, ask yourself, would your wife say this about you? If you're married, would your wife say this about you? He says, marriage to a Christ-like husband is for a woman the opposite of a dead-end life. A woman married to a nourishing man comes to the end of her days as an older lady, and as she is sitting on a porch somewhere in her rocking chair, looking back on her life, she is praising God and thinking, being married to this man, my husband, opened up my life. It totally opened it up. Yes, we suffered. Yes, we made mistakes. But in it all, my husband thought of me. He cared about me, how my life was going. We had a great run together, living for Jesus together. That's a nourishing husband. Would your wife say that about you? I love this word cherish. That word cherish means to warm or to soften by heat. It's where we get our, our word, our kind of phrase, heartwarming. This is, this is a divine sort of calling for a man in the home to create a heartwarming place where people are cherished. And isn't this what God has done for us? One of my favorite texts in the Bible is Zephaniah chapter three, verse 17. Listen to how the Lord feels about his sons and daughters. It says, the Lord your God is in your midst a mighty one who will save. This is our God. He's, he's with us. He's in our midst. And he's looking to save, to give his life away so that we can flourish. And it goes on to say that this God that's in our midst, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will delight in you. Rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing, that's what Jesus has done for all of his sons and daughters. This is who God is for his people. He doesn't just want us to know that we're loved. He wants to bring that love down into our felt experience. And any godly head wants the same in their home. They don't just want their wife and children to know that they love them. They want to tell them why they love them, how they love them. They want to rejoice over them with singing. They want them to know everyone in their home that they are delighted in by their dad, delighted in by their husband. One of your divine opportunities as a husband is to position yourself as the most affirming voice in the life of your wife. What a great gift. And I'll just finish it with this. I have a friend that planted a church many years ago. And as he planted, their marriage was going well. Everything was, was looking great. Um, about eight or nine years into their, their church plant, and this was about 10 or 11 years into their marriage, his wife just collapsed in a puddle of tears in their living room. And she looked at him and just said, our marriage can't keep going like this. I, I can't, I can't do this. It can't keep going like this. And she went on to recount an episode that happened the previous Sunday. Um, they had, I think, three or four kids at the time. She is wrestling all the kids, getting them into church, getting them situated, all that. She goes and gets them all at the end, is wrestling to get them out the, the front of the church. And one of the greeters, didn't even know this, like, just one of the greeters at the church 
looked at the lady, and obviously she was struggling, and just came over to her and said, can, can I please help? What can I do to help you? And, and the, the usher, in totally appropriate ways, grabbed her kids, kind of walked them out to the car, opened the car door for her and her kids, put them into the car, closed the car door behind them, and just said, it's so great to have you. I'm so glad that you're here, and I hope you have a great day. And she, in her living room, a week later, just looking up to her husband in a puddle of tears, said, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to cheat on you. But I just want you to know how great that felt last week. To have someone notice me. To have someone try to lift a burden in my life. To try to, try to help me. I just want you to know how, how good that felt. And I just wonder how many of, of the men in this room are in a very similar position where what's really needed right now in your life is to re-win the heart of your wife. And by God's grace, I'm praying that every man in the room will embrace that this morning. So will you pray with me? I just wanna give you a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you what would be most helpful to wipe away what wouldn't be. If you don't know Jesus, this is your moment. God has come down in the person of his son, pursued you with his initiating love, melted your resistance, proposed to you. And this morning you have the opportunity, if you're not a Christian, if you've never made this definitive step toward Jesus, to push your life across the line and say yes to Jesus. If you haven't done that, I pray this would be your morning. For every wife in the room, this would be a wonderful moment for you to pray for your husband. For every husband in the room, this is, this is a moment where you can allow the Lord to deal with you. Just ask the Holy Spirit, where is it that I need to take the next step? What does it look like for me to initiate, for me to start to give my life away? for me to love my family in a way that's helping them become beautiful, for me to delight in and to affirm my wife. What does it look like for me to step into the shoes Jesus has left for me? And here's the great thing about this. Being a biblical Jesus portraying head does not, it's not like a personality type. It's not like, well, a few of you are gonna be great at it, but the rest, of, it's not that. Every single man can step into that. If you're single, you can begin to grow into that. If you're married, you can take steps today to become more of that. And here is the wonderful word in the Bible that we all need to hear this morning. It's this little word called grace. Grace. And it is this beautiful grace of God that breaks into our life and opens up a whole new world of possibilities. Here's the great thing. If you have been terrible at this, you don't have to stay terrible at it. Because of grace, like the same grace that rescued you is the same grace today that will enable you to take the next step toward this. It's that grace that will move you forward. One of the reasons God is so worthy to be praised is because this grace from him 
doesn't pick us up where we should be this morning. It picks us up exactly where we are. All of our failures, all of our mishaps, all of our missteps, right where we are, and it takes us to the next step. So, oh God, would you help us submit to you today? God, would you help us open our life to you today? God, would you help us want and long to be Jesus portraying husbands, Jesus portraying men? God, would you help us in that? God, by your grace, would you make us into this sort of people? God, would you do that for us? Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.